This is Chapter 138 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we talk with Kylie Reed about her buzzy, hilarious, and cringy debut. We travel back to New York's Gilded Age with best-selling author M.J. Rose, and we wrap up with a harrowing mother-daughter tale from debut novelist Stephanie Robel. Such a fun age, the debut novel from Kylie Reed has been described as an important book that's compulsively fun to read, and I couldn't agree more. The book is a roller coaster of emotions, outrage, embarrassment, introspective, and not to mention laugh out loud funny. She told me what prompted her coming of age story that also confronts issues of race, class, motherhood, and privilege. Initially, my goal was to write a relationship between three people that was very sticky and precarious. And in this situation, I got two relationships with three people. The first is kind of an old story of a young white child, a white mother, and the black woman who takes care of them. But it also turned into another story with three people of a young woman who's figuring out what she wants to do, her new boyfriend, and her employer. And I think with such a modern-day story, race and class comes in easily. But Initially, I started with character. I know your own nanny and babysitting experience inspired the story. Did you ever have the type of relationship that Amira has with Briar? I definitely did. There were many children that I felt very close to. Um, I think I had a very different situation than Amira in that I knew that I wanted to write. I had this passion and I had this goal at the end that was really guiding me. And so I think that that drew me to Amira of wondering, you know, what would this look like if I didn't have this thing at the end? And people kept asking me, well, what are you going to do next? Uh, But as far as children go, we're very similar in that way. And we both love to treat children like adults. And I definitely had a lot of children that I fell in love with. My heart ached for Briar with some of the things that she had to go through and just how precocious she was and the things she would say. And I, I think some of the funniest lines in the book came out of her mouth. Briar says exactly what she wants to say at every single moment. And I was so, when I was a nanny, I was so shocked at how much intelligence that toddlers had so early on and also how serious they could be. And I was definitely inspired to make Briar extremely accurate to the point where she seems like a little bit of an oddball sometimes. Let's talk about the scene that really impacts all of your characters' lives. Amira is racially profiled in a grocery store while she's watching Briar. What do you want people to take away from that scene? As a writer, the first priority is that that scene sucks them in. I love a really gripping scene that makes me want to keep reading and care about these characters and know everything that's brought them to this moment. Uh, As a human and as a reader, I love when books zoom out on events that maybe I had not considered in a certain way. Uh, I started writing this book in 2015, and that was when Black Lives Matter was becoming more and more active. And a lot of the videos and recordings that we see online have, you know, these tragic, terrible, violent endings. And I was really curious about what one of the more low-to-the-ground domestic uh, instances of racial bias would look like that is not as violent, but still very traumatic. The book's been out for a few weeks. Have you heard from readers about it? I have. It's been really wonderful to hear that, you know, readers say I couldn't put this down. A lot of people like to send me the timestamps, but they finished it, which is two and three in the morning, which I love because I love when a book hooks me in like that. 
But it's also been really interesting to hear from people, um, especially black women, who say, I loved this, but I had to put it down so many times because I was so angry. Um, And I think that's a really honest um, and human reaction. But they finished it. They did finish it. And most of the time they really love it, which has been really, really lovely. And also to hear a lot of black women say, you know, this is the first time I've read a black protagonist and I read all the time. And so those words of affirmation are wonderful. And it's been really thrilling that people are loving it so far. And it's crazy, too, to think in this day and age that they haven't come across a book that has a black protagonist and that resonates with them so much. Right. I think that that's all too easy to do, unfortunately. Um, the publishing world is, is very homogenous, but I'm really glad that this is connecting with people. You've said you hope this novel will serve as a gateway and mirror for readers. Tell me what that means. Yeah, I think a little bit about what we were just talking about with certain readers having never read a Black protagonist before. There's so many stories for people of color, uh, not just Black people, that you know. I hope that this could open them up to read other things as well. Um, I also... I don't love when novels tell me what to think of a character or tell me who's good or who's bad. And so when a novel kind of lets me think what I want to think, it makes me turn everything kind of back on myself. And I love when novels make me say, oh, shoot, do I do that a little bit Um, and make me see things a little bit differently? I think that's the reaction a lot of readers are going to have. And also, I've noticed there's a lot of talk about whether or not people think Alix is a villain. There is. There is. And I had a very exciting text from a friend last week who said she was in a nail salon in Tribeca and a group of women was discussing my book and two of them got into an argument over whether Alex was good or bad. And it got to the point where there was screaming and a little bit of pushing and they were asked to leave the salon. (laughs) So I really hope that most conversations do not end in blows, but I do love that it's you know, causing this big conversation. I mean, she's totally one of those characters that completely has you torn. You're not sure. Like at times you think she's coming from a good place. At other times you think she's all in it for herself. Then she's got her friends around her who maybe enable her a little bit and you you want to shake her and you want to slap her and sometimes you just want to hug her. Like It's really, (laughs) she's so conflicting. (laughs) I love that, though. I love characters that you just want to hug and also want to shake a little bit of a shaking hug. I totally agree. Yes. So the book is a a Reese's Book Club pick. It's already been optioned for TV and film. How are you handling all that attention? I have to be honest and say that my publishing team at Putnam has really kept me together. It's it's overwhelming. You you spend three years in your room and all of a sudden this thing is, is very much out for everyone to read it. Um, I think that staying grounded in the reason that I started writing this book and also seeing it as a platform to write another one has made the overwhelming stuff not so overwhelming, which is nice. I want to talk about the title. Is it meant to be sarcastic? Does it refer to one character in particular, or is it really up to the reader to decide what it means? That's a great question. Uh, I think that anyone who's babysat has heard that phrase. I heard it all the time. It's kind of like talking about the weather with a stranger. Uh, Oh, how old is she? Oh, 14 months. Oh, such a fun age. That's how I always heard it. But I also was excited to have the title reflect on the different ages that all of the characters are. Um, Amira's 25. Her friends are having a great time, but she's struggling to get health coverage. And Alex is 33. She has a business, but she also feels like She should be farther along. And even more zoomed out, it was definitely a reflection of where we were in our current age, which was the Obama era, 
that we now look back on very romantically. And I was excited to have a bit of a biting title and really reflect what was happening at the time. I could see how it would apply to every character in the book. And then also thinking, you kind of yourself at this moment are experiencing such a fun age. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes I feel like uh, a lot of my characters feel like they should be having a lot more fun than they are, Briar included. So yeah, it's a bit of a biting title. I think it's one of those grass is always greener type of things, isn't it? I think so too. Yes. What's up next for you, Kylie? I'm very excited to work on this film adaptation. Um, I love film and I'm so excited to see what we can accomplish on screen that maybe was more difficult for me on the page. And of course, novel number two, but I'm a really slow writer. So give me a few years before that happens. (laughs) All right. Well, in the meantime, we'll look forward to that film adaptation. Do you have any idea who you'd like to see in the, the main roles in your book? Oh, man, Um, that's usually my favorite game to play with every novel I read is casting who would be who. But I think now that it's mine, uh, I'm trying very hard not to be too precious about it. But I really hope that whoever is there is really awkward and funny. That is the goal. (laughs) And I can't wait to see how the the little actress that gets to play Briar. Me too. Me too. When I think about it now, she might be so little. So, yeah, I'm excited to meet her too. (laughs) All right. Well, we've been talking with Kylie Reed. The new book is such a fun age. Such a great read. And I think also it's one of those books that when you put it down, you will still keep thinking about it, talking about it, and hopefully not getting into fights and nail salons about. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much. You could say New York City during the late 19th century was a tale of two cities. On the one hand, you had the growing merchant class, families like the Astors, Vanderbilts, and Carnegies, who used their wealth to build parks, mansions, palatial public buildings, not to mention throw extravagant parties. The flip side was the working poor class and immigrants who lived in tenements in squalid conditions. This Gilded Age of New York, as it's called, is the setting for Cartier's Hope, the rich and sumptuous romantic historical mystery by M.J. Rose. I recently got to talk to her about the book, which owes its existence to some bad luck. I was, took some jewelry classes in Paris a couple of years ago, and the class was about diamonds. And the instructor said something about bad luck and how in the early 1900s, A lot of women actually flaunted the idea of bad luck by wearing bad luck symbols upside down, like horseshoes are bad luck if you turn them upside down, and they had charms made with the number 13 on them, and they sort of like had fun playing around with the idea that there was no such thing as bad luck. And she went on to explain that that was actually part of the reason that Evelyn Walsh McLean, who bought the Hope Diamond, actually bought it because it was there was all these rumors that it was bad luck, and she thought it would just be a hoot to own something that had so much bad luck attached to it. And that Pierre Cartier, the famous French jeweler, part of the Cartier name, had bought the Hope Diamond and owned it for 11 months before he sold it, and during that time he had highly exaggerated the bad luck attached to it, in order to get more attention for it. And I was just like riveted by that story and the idea that Pierre Cartier had done that and that it had worked. And so I started thinking about a novel that would take place during those 11 months that he owned the stone before it was sold. So um, it's not about the, the purchase of it. It's about the 11 months and a woman who finds out what Cartier has done. She's a journalist, which was a very, very difficult thing to do in 1910. Women were not allowed, 
well, not not invited to be journalists at all. They they were regulated to um, the the ladies' pages and the uh, living style things. But she wants to investigate the story, and that was sort of how it all started. And in this character too, what makes it doubly difficult for her is that she is part of that non-working class. So if anybody finds out that she's a working woman, it kind of would backfire on her a little bit. Yeah, in 1910, it wasn't really very popular for women to work. You worked if you had to, but rich, wealthy families didn't want their daughters to work. And my character, her name is Vera Garland, and she's very determined to be a journalist, and her mother is aghast. She wants her to marry and have children and be part of the 400 in New York. So Vera, and this is not giving anything away, Vera has two personalities. She's Vera Garland when she's with her family, and then she has another name when she she's V, v Swan when she's a reporter. And so she is living a double life. And there there are a lot of people in the book who are living double lives and mysteries and hidden secrets. And that is, in addition to this whole Hope Diamond focus of the book, she finds out uh, about a, a family secret that kind of sets her off on this course. Yes, she does. But I'm not going to talk about that. No, we won't. No spoilers here. <laughs> there are also a lot of extremes in the book between the haves and the have-nots, between men and women. Was that intentional on your part or just a reflection of the times? Yeah, you know, that was really funny. Was It was not intentional. I had no idea that they were even, that that was even an issue in the book. I was writing about what I read about the Gilded Age, especially in New York in 1910, which was a time of extremes, of very, very wealthy and very, very poor, and how men and women were treated so differently. And it was my editor who read the first, when he read the first draft, who pointed out not only how interesting that was to him, but how timely it was to what we're living through now, and how similar despite it being over 110 years later, how similar so many of these issues are to now and how current so many of these issues are now. There's there's also a lot of anti-Semitism in the book, which is still something we're struggling. And we're living through a period of haves and have-nots now that's greater than any we've had in, you know, hundreds of years. I want to go back to Cartier, uh, the, the man. I um, do, too. <laughs> Oh, would it, that, not on my salary. <laughs> was there anything that you learned about him during your research that really stuck out? Yeah. First of all, it was very hard to research Pierre Cartier. He was a very private man. He was the one of three sons of the man who started the Cartier jewelry firm in Paris. One son went to London and ran the London Cartier. One son stayed in Paris and one son came to New York. And that's Pierre Cartier. He was a, a wonderful man, very beloved, a philanthropist, uh, married, had a daughter. But he was a really, he was one of the early PR brilliant people in the jewelry industry. And he exaggerated things and came up with ideas. And he was involved in marketing in a way that up till then few people were in, in business at all. And that spoke to me personally. I'm from an advertising family. I'm in advertising. I still am. I still I own an advertising agency. So his whole marketing genius 
was fascinating to me and, and really appealed to me. I didn't realize that he was taking advantage of that whole idea about bad luck jewelry because the stories that surround the Hope Diamond, I think most people know in some way, shape, or form that it's cursed. Right. Well, there are a lot of terrible things that have happened to people who've owned the Hope Diamond for real. But he exaggerated a lot of them and added to them. And he did that. um, He based a lot of the things he added to the legend from a novel that was very popular uh, called The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. There's actually a PBS um, wonderful series of it now. But I was fascinated to find out that Cartier had read the novel and had borrowed some of the stories from the novel in what he told people. There's a section of the book where Pierre Cartier describes the diamond to Evelyn Walsh McLean. And that's taken from Evelyn Walsh McLean's autobiography, where she describes how Pierre Cartier described the stone to her. And what he tells her about how the stone was taken from this Indian Hindu god is completely from the moonstone. It wasn't taken that way at all. It was bought legitimately by a gem dealer named Tavernier, and it was not stolen out of a Hindu god, and dogs didn't chase the Tavernier out of a temple. That was all made up. So I loved finding the passage in Evelyn Walsh McLean's autobiography that I could use to explain just how good a salesman Cartier was. And, you know, I've I've seen the Hope Diamond at the Smithsonian. I'm sure a lot of people have. And just when you when you see it in person, it makes sense that a stone and that looks the way it does would have some sort of fantastical backstory to it. Yeah, because it's not people and it's on the cover, but it's funny because people say diamond and you expect something very different. And when you see it. It's very mysterious. It's a very odd blue, smoky color that doesn't, it's not sort of the kind of beautiful that you would imagine. You know, it's, it's transforming and it's powerful, but it's not, the setting is pretty, but the stone itself, you wouldn't look at it and go, oh, isn't that pretty? It's just astonishing. So your books have spanned all sorts of decades. Do you have a, a, a favorite time period that you like to write about? Um, I seem to gravitate, yes, to about 1880 to 1930. Um, I I just am working on a book now that also has a part that takes place in 1948. And and I think like 1950 is about as far as I want to go. I I just really like that other other time period for its attention to detail, for for a lot of the beauty, but also for the challenges and for the conflicts that during those, what is that, 80, like during that 70 years, there was so much change in, in most countries and in most people's lives, and so many rules and attitudes changed so drastically. So your last book was about Lewis Comfort Tiffany. This one centers around Cartier. Do you have another prominent retailer slash artisan in mind for that book you're writing now? Um, it's not about a particular retailer. It's not another jeweler's name, but it is about a famous piece of jewelry that's lost. It's about a lost piece of jewelry. Oh, I guess we'll just have to wait to read it then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, MJ Rose, we've been talking about the new book, which is Cartier's Hope. Thank you for taking some time and talking to us about it. 
Oh, thank you for reading it so much. I appreciate it. Munchausen syndrome by proxy, or MSBP, is defined as a mental health disorder in which a caregiver, oftentimes a mother, invents or causes an illness or injury to a person under her care. Learning about this particular form of abuse was the impetus for Darling Rose Gold, the debut thriller from author Stephanie Robel. It's about a mother and daughter named Patty and Rose Gold Watts. But unlike other books that deal with MSBP, this book focuses on the why and not the what. Stephanie explains. I wanted to explore the motivations and what's going on through someone's mind that has Munchausen by proxy. So I think in order to do that, you kind of need to know off the bat that this person has that illness. So to have it as some sort of twist wouldn't really work. Um, But yeah, I just think... The fact that their motivation is attention and love from the medical community, from doctors and nurses, is just so fascinating and sad. These, most of these perpetrators have um, childhood histories of severe abuse or neglect themselves. And so I think just trying to get inside of that mind was a really intriguing challenge. You've said that the character of Patty the mom was really hard to write because you have very loving parents. (laughs) So what sort of research or like imagination, digging deep, did you have to do to get her, I'm going to say just evil character, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I think, um, so it was easier to find firsthand accounts of victims. Um, It's very hard to find firsthand accounts of perpetrators because typically people with MSPB do not admit that they have it. So basically, I I read some textbook stuff. I tried to kind of form a more general profile of just, you know, what these people's behaviors are and things like that. And then I started getting more specific on what Patty would be like. And I think, you know, one of my goals with the novel is, can I at times make readers empathize with her? Not always. Obviously, she does a lot of horrible things. But I think once you start getting into, you know, the way that she truly is concerned for Rose Gold, um, some of the decisions that she's made as far as just like wanting the best care for her daughter, I think more readers can relate to. And so I tried to bring those parts of her to the forefront and not just focus on the more evil stuff. Because I think, you know, every villain thinks they're the hero of the story. And, you know, I didn't want to just have this two-dimensional person who just acts like a crazy person all the time. I think there are times, though, while you're reading that, that, you know, you're reading about Patty and she really starts to convince you that, Maybe she, maybe Rose Gold really is sick and she really is doing everything she can think of. And mm. I guess that's what you mean by making her a little sympathetic is that she really it does come across as her really caring. Meanwhile, you know, she's really just doing this for herself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's true to real life is in order to fool so many doctors and neighbors and teachers. I mean, these these perpetrators are very charming and manipulative. So I think that. I didn't necessarily, you know, I I didn't set out to kind of like trick readers with it. But I I do think that is a good sign because I think in in real life, like people with MSBB are able to pull that off. You know, doctors are obviously very intelligent as far as like what ailments should, you know, be of concern or red flags. And a lot of times they don't catch this kind of stuff because, you know, of course, everyone assumes that a parent has their child's best interests at heart. And they also end up jumping around with doctors when a doctor starts to get a little suspicious, right? Yeah, exactly. That all being said, was it easier to write Rose Gold's character? No, actually it was easier to write Patty's because <laughs> really? I think that, that tone of just sort of being a little 
flippant and sarcastic at times like that was a little bit easier. Patty's character doesn't change that much throughout the story. She just kind of sticks to her, you know, she sticks to her party line and doesn't really waver much. But Rose Gold was a challenge because her character development is so um, dramatic. And where she starts out, you know, she has been socially isolated her entire life. So she doesn't have the pop culture references that most of us have. She doesn't know how to socialize the way the rest of us do. And so I think, you know, in first drafts or early drafts of her character, she was too conscious of, you know, colloquialisms and little things like that. And so I really had to keep going back, back, back and just kind of figuring out like, wait a second, she's operating from a very different like mindset than I ever have. In the last chapter, I I promise I'm not going to give anything (laughs) away because we don't do spoilers. Someone breaks the fourth wall, addresses the reader, Mm. and explains that she did what we've always wanted to do. Have you ever experienced that particular feeling that she's addressing? Not really, to be honest. I mean, I'm a pretty steady person. Like, my temperament is like, you know, I, I kind of operate within a pretty calm range. It takes a lot to really rankle me. And, um... No, there's nobody who has incited that level of, uh, I mean, obviously that level of emotion, but uh, no, (laughs) that was just fun to reach into my imagination and think like, what is somebody who has that just deep seated passion? Like what is going through their mind? Have you always had a very dark imagination? Because this book is, it is dark. It's, it's a beautiful cover and you think, oh, it's going to be rose gold and darling and the cover's pink and it, you know, all this kind of fun, like girly, pretty stuff. And it's really not, it's ugly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel really lucky with the cover that I got. And I think the prettiness of it is perfect for the story that, you know, to juxtapose against the story. You know, I never thought that I had that dark of an imagination, but it's funny doing interviews and stuff like this. Now I'm starting to realize that maybe I do. I mean, it's not like I, you know, sit in my free time thinking about this kind of stuff. But I do think just I've always been really interested in outliers and the psychology and just me- different mental health stuff. And so I think exploring that and exploring the whys behind people's behavior is just really fascinating. I know you must be really high on, on your debut now, but have you thought about what's next? Yes. So I'm working on my second novel now, and I've been describing it as a wellness center with some cult-like tendencies. And so it's written from three points of view, from the leader, a member, and a concerned relative. So the medical kind of thing (laughs) seems to really intrigue you. Yeah, and I'm really interested in um, people who are in sort of positions of power or are trying to, like, power trip. I think people who lie, people who are very charismatic, I think those sorts of traits, like, do not come naturally to me at all. And so I find them really interesting to just kind of study. And what makes one person charismatic versus another? Why are people willing to follow and believe certain people but not others? So that's some of the stuff that I'm exploring. Well, we look forward to reading that. In the meantime, people can pick up Darling Rose Gold. Stephanie Roble, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That does it for us. Next time, get ready for a contemporary retelling of Henry VIII. You know, the one with the six wives and several mistresses. Should be interesting in this era of Me Too. Until then, keep tabs on us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.